Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to John Richardson and the Future Notes Book of Revelations. This is episode 10, The Future of Citizens, featuring our guest John Alexander. But before that, let me introduce my colleagues, my friends. It's Mark Stevenson and Ed Gillespie. Hello, and what is wrong with you? What do you think? That was like news news night. What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) You know, sometimes it's nice to have a fun at my incompetence, and sometimes it's nice to just... that—that's If that's who you want me to be, guys, I can be that guy. Do we reveal at this point that you you, you turned up to recording quarter of an hour late? (laughs) (laughs) I was rehearsing my sexy Radio 4 voice. I don't like it. No, I didn't think you would. That's why I, I... It's not that I don't remember the episode number or your names. It's just that I knew that was the best way to bring the best out of you. And I can be quite an intimidating guy when I've got my shit together. So I thought, you know, <laughs> to settle everyone at their ease, what I'll do, I'll continually forget who we are, where we are, and what we're doing. He's gaslighting us, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> now i made a promise um in the last episode that i would watch your tedx talk ed Ooh. and i did, oh, you did. I'm, I'm sorry john <laughs> you'll never get that time back you get a name check in it i do i know yeah have you, watched you it? so you have watched it <laughs> i have to watch it don't i i'll work with you <laughs> <laughs> oh, did did your heart fly when you heard your name mentioned? I thought, oh God, people are going to associate me with him again. <laughs> <laughs> I think that tends to happen anyway. Yeah, I know. I guess really, if I didn't want to be associated with you, I shouldn't hang out with you all the time, work with you, no. and tell everybody how brilliant I think you are. <laughs> it's very good. It's very good. I got um, I got emotional at the end when you uh, talk about loving the planet and how the planet doesn't want to be saved or rescued or changed. It wants to be loved. Mm. And it's been in my head a lot this week, a horrific story about a footballer, not the sort of thing that we're not sadly seeing a lot with these young men, but I've been thinking a lot about masculinity this week. And I think it's because I'm writing stand-up again, what men think they're supposed to be and how much damage Mm. it does. And I was very proud to see you speak in a very public forum in a way that I I haven't seen anyone talk that emotively about the planet and just be very frank and honest and uh, talk about feelings that are involved with this. And it's something we don't do a lot of, and I thought it was very good. Oh, thank you, John. 
Oh, shut up, the pair of you. It's making me sick. <laughs> and, I look, and I look forward to hearing Quantum Pig's new album. Well, actually, yeah. well, you know, it's a very emotional album, actually. There's a whole, there's a whole song in there about, you know, about, about the, the need to, to see each other and hear each other and feel each other and all that kind of stuff. So, Is it longer than Ed's TED Talk? Of course it's longer than Ed's TED Talk. It's prog rock. Each, each, track, each track is, is longer, longer than Ed's TED Talk. <laughs> hey, we've, we've, we've got a gig. Uh, we are doing a national tour. Uh, later in the year we are we are supporting a much bigger band than us and we will be playing some thousand seater venues which is very nice but i can't say when yet because we're still waiting for the tour dates i hope you get a bigger crowd than i got in my thousand seater venue oh yeah <laughs> that was a gig you didn't know it's about 15 people yeah yeah. <laughs> yes, well, yeah, I, I didn't want to tempt fate last time and I don't want to tempt fate again. With a tour to sell later this year, all I should be saying is it happens to us all and the important thing is the content, right, guys? And if the show's good, it doesn't matter who's there. But it yeah. does, does speak to the different levels of our celebrity in that my band will play venues that are smaller than you as an individual will feel. Uh, yes, but my audience will have a worse time. <laughs> <laughs> if it's any consolation to you. I tell you what, you come to one of my gigs, I'll come to one of yours. We're playing Leeds. Is that anywhere near you now? It's very near me. I'll bring Marcelo Bielsa. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if he's I mean, I don't know if he's into prog and he's never replied to any of my messages. <laughs> I know he's into cinema. Um so I'll just pretend what, the there's a director coming. Is there a band called Cinema? Oh that that'll be the hilarious way I get him in. There was nearly a band called Cinema which was formed of ex members of Yes and a guy called Trevor Rabin, but then that became the band, yes, again, under a new format. So cinema never really existed, although they did sort of exist. So if you're into prog law, oh God, cinema's quite now. important. <laughs> it's better than listen to your fucking poetry. <laughs> Which brings me to this. This week's episode is a belter and is a good old meaty chat, isn't it? So we need not to hang around any longer. Uh, discussing not just bands, but bands that didn't exist. I think that's when you know you're pushing it up. <laughs> bands that only existed in theory is a hell of a mastermind specialist subject, but it's not something for our listeners. So here we are to discuss. This is, I mean, it's a big old topic, isn't it? And if you're like me and you come to this new, it's a topic that shouldn't be a topic at all, let alone as big as it is, the idea that we should think of ourselves differently in a way that connects us to each other rather mm. than alienates us from one another. But we have the wonderful John Alexander here, and uh, I will hand to you, Ed, to introduce him. So I first met John in about 2008 when we were both in different advertising and comms agencies brushing up against each other in a polite but sharp-elbowed fashion over a mutual client. John worked in advertising for a decade. Uh, he won Brand Republic's Big Idea of the Year Award for the concept My Farm in 2011, uh, which handed over decision-making on a real working farm to the public by online vote and debate uh, as a way of engaging people with sustainable food production. So eat your heart out, Jeremy Clarkson. Uh, he has also watched pigs rutting professionally. Uh, that was his professionalism, not the pigs. They were born to do it. He's got three. Yes, three master's degrees. Uh, I've only got two, but let's not get competitive. And he's won loads of awards for his essays and writing on topics as diverse as sustainable innovation, meritocracy and new power. Uh, and his piece analysing the British government's response to COVID-19 uh, through the lens of a citizen versus consumer story, which we will probably get well into later on, uh, went viral and has been watched and read by at least 650,000 people. So he's publicly gobby. 
uh, in a good way. Uh, and it's done so all over the world, from the Athens Democracy Forum to TEDx Cardiff to Brand Week Istanbul. He's also increasingly active and visible politically uh, as a fellow of the Young Foundation and the Royal Society of Arts uh, and a member of the World Economic Forum's Political Entrepreneurship Network and the Organisation for Economic and Cooperation Development's Innovative Citizen Participation Network. Uh, he's joining us here today as co-founder of the New Citizenship Project, a strategy and innovation consultancy that aims to shift the dominant story of the individual in society from consumer to citizen. Uh, and there he's worked with The Guardian, the European Central Bank, the European Journalism Centre, the BBC, Amnesty International, National Trust, the British Film Institute, Tate Galleries, the National Union of Students, YouGov, the Food Standards Agency and the Food Ethics Council, to name but a few. And of course, his forthcoming, eagerly awaited new book, which is an absolute tour de force, Citizens, is out on the 17th of March. So, John, you really should get out more. Um, he's also a mercilessly fit Ironman and has represented Great Britain in both rowing and triathlon. And I picture John as Wolfie Smith, fist raised in the air outside tooting Broadway tube station without the fag in the mouth and minus the fur coat and beret, but still shouting, power to the people. So welcome to the show, Citizen Alexander. Thank you very much, Ed. And I, I, I would also like to assure people that I'm not a twat, uh, which some of them... <laughs> <laughs> I keep telling Ed to put that in the introductions, but he keeps leaving it out. I feel, I feel like I needed it though, right? Yeah, it's all good. Thanks, Ed. Does that introduction make you sound like a twat? I don't know. It's I must just, admit, I don't know John well enough to speak, but the Iron Man stuff, I was starting to wonder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we'll, we'll try and prove it over that I'm, that, that my assertion that I'm not a twat over the next little while, shall we? Where, where, where do you want to go? Where do we want to go first? Well, the way we usually kick things off, as you're probably aware, is our first question, which in the context of being active citizens uh, and in the world of citizenship, how fucked are we, John? <laughs> well, I, I mean, the way I would probably put this is probably I'm going to be like the most uh, negative of your of your uh, discussions ever and also the most positive at the same time, which would be fun. So basically, I think we're incredibly fucked uh, and and only getting more so um and yet at the same time i think we have everything we need to unfuck ourselves and do it pretty quickly um but but i'll come to that we'll come to that bit later i'm sure i mean basically the reason why i say we're we're incredibly fucked is you, you just go we're screwed and we are screwing ourselves up because the story that we appeal to the the, the sort of the basis from which we try and draw our ways to fix things that story itself is broken and is and is what is making things worse. So, so like we're we're ecologically fucked, and we're telling ourselves that our only agency is to buy stuff. The, the only thing we can do is to to fix things, is to is to consume, uh, and and change individual behaviour incrementally. We're we're kind of socially fucked and and sort of divided and and getting more divided, and and yet we're we're living in a story that tells us that 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 we should sort of accumulate and look out for number one and that we are inherently individuals and we're sort of loneliness. We're individually fucked. We're kind of lonely and, and unhappy and, and telling ourselves a story that the route to happiness is, is to, is to sort of accumulate stuff. And, and so, yeah, I'd say we're, we're in a pretty dire state, but I would also say that it's only a story and, and that's sort of the heart of my work really. But it comes down to that, doesn't it? Cause I mean, there's so much we've touched on issues of trust 
um, in a previous um, episode with Rachel Botsman. You know, and obviously, as we're recording this, you know, the levels of institutional trust are at such an all-time low. Uh, and that also sort of compels us to to keep our focus close, doesn't it, when everything's going to shit? And I, I think uh, a, a train conversation I had with a woman on the train, I just sat next to her uh, down to London before Christmas. She asked me what I did, and we sort of started touching on a, a couple of things. And she said, you know, I live in my bubble. And she was really proud of that, you know, her sort of isolation and disconnection, that she didn't want to engage in any of the worlds of politics or big ideas or things. You know, it was almost like uh, a pride she was taking in the fact that she was isolated and disconnected. I think, I mean, I think that's exactly right. But but that's that's sort of a symptom of exactly what I'm talking about. So, so if I can, if I sort of unpack it a little bit, just the core set of ideas. So what I'm working with, I talk about essentially an idea of, that there is a dominant story of the individual in society at any given time, that there's, there's a story that we kind of appeal to, to understand really how to be good. And for a long time, uh, until the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, that story was something like the subject. So the right thing to do was to keep your head down and do as you're told on the basis that the, the sort of God-given few knew best and would lead us to the to the best outcomes for society as a whole. Then that that kind of collapsed in on itself for various reasons, which we can have some fun with if you want. But and, and out of that, in the middle of the 20th century, we got this, we got a new story, the, the idea of the consumer. So from subject to consumer. And the consumer story says like the right thing to do is to look out for number one to stick to your bubble as your lady put it and to 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 choose the best deal for for you from the options that are offered on the basis that pursuing individual self-interest if everyone pursues self-interest then that will add up to collective interest like the best outcome for society will come from aggregating self-interest and i would argue where we're at right now is that 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 precisely is the story that is is collapsing in on itself and and the hope comes from, from, I believe, from from the idea that actually there's a there's a different story emerging, what I call the citizen story, and the reason why everything I do in my life has the word citizen in it, which is which is basically like get involved, share share your own ideas, be part of the conversation about what's best for society as a whole, because that's the only way we'll actually figure it out. And so, so I'm not surprised by your lady, like she's trapped in the story just as we all are. And, and, and in that story it is kind of the right thing to do. It's, and it, and it makes sense, particularly as things feel like they're getting worse to go to kind of lock it down and, and, and stay in and, and, and stare at what you feel you can affect. But that in itself is part of the trap that the story sets us. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the, the story is kind of like, you feel kind of sort of helpless in the face of sort of, you know, what's going on in the world, but you also strangely feel complicit and that is, you know, but you don't know what to do about it. So you kind of try and do a little bit less of maybe consuming, but you're still feeling complicit and helpless in this kind of shit show that we find ourselves in at the beginning of the uh, 21st century. I think that's right. It's like the, the the story tells us that the best we can aspire to do and be is the gentlest possible destroyers, like to, to fuck things up just a little bit less uh, or a little bit more slowly is, is sort of the, the, the greatest aspiration we can we can have when actually like sometimes people I've, I've been asked like what, what what's the best thing an individual can do and it's like be less of an individual right like go and find your people find your and, and get stuck in talking about fucking things up not as much as as, as he might uh, or a person might john did you have something to say <laughs> <laughs> i was going to ask john if you could because i think what would be good uh for the layman such as myself is to outline exactly what you mean by the difference between a citizen and a consumer because it strikes me that that woman on the train 
she feels like she can opt out of being a citizen. What she's saying is, I find this all very stressful, so the best thing I can do is opt out. She cannot opt out of being a consumer, and she may not be aware of quite how much she's being dictated to in the the number of things that she's buying. And you talk in the, in the introduction to the book about the number of advertisements and and compulsions to buy that we see on a daily basis. So I think it will be useful to hit home for people you can't you are a consumer whether you're trying to buy less or not the world we live in is shaped to make you a consumer and not a citizen yeah and i think it's in in a way the important distinction is to say like this isn't about you're not a consumer whenever you do something that relates to business and a citizen whenever you do something that relates to government like you're a consumer whenever you are living in a story that tell that where your where your agency is limited to choosing between the options that someone else offers so you can be a consumer in relation to to politics if all if all you do is cast a vote every x years you can you can be a consumer in relation to a charity if all you do is buy a thing from it or whatever the point is that as you say like we're surrounded by this story incredibly pervasively so the 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 way i sort of first started to think about this was when i started working in advertising my my first boss said to me like what what you've got to understand john is that the average the average person sees three thousand commercial messages a day all of which are, are trying to sell them something and your job is to cut through that and for a while i was like that's great like i can that's a really lovely challenge and you know with my sports like mindset it was like i love competing for that and then i was like 3,000 times a day, all of which, all of those messages have the underlying message, you're a consumer. It's like one of the way, uh, it, like in, in, I didn't write this in the book, but one of the ways I think about this is it's like, it's like the world's most pervasive ever religion, right? Like the, the most pervasive religions of our current day tell us, like call us to prayer like five times a day, maybe. Consumerism is, the, the, the religion of consumerism is calling us like 3,000 times a day under, under the radar and, and shaping how we think and how we act pretty much every every moment and so so you can't help but be a consumer whether you whether you actively identify but what we can do is kind of actually define that and, and step into a different idea of ourselves because i mean you, you ask the question in the book john you say you know what are we doing to ourselves when we tell ourselves we're consumers yeah. that many times per day and i think you know you and i when we first met you know we were both sort of trying to wrestle with if you like that idea of conscious consumption i think you know we uh hadn't quite sort of um drunk the kool-aid or taken the red pill but we were certainly i think both believers in the fact that we could probably bend this in some way that we could operate within that sort of consumer story although perhaps i think we were probably both doing it slightly unconsciously then but you you but you talk in the book really powerfully about your own sort of creeping epiphany you know, where, you know, you said you're literally actually physically sick on a tube station platform because you felt that you just couldn't reconcile the tensions uh, of working in advertising and, and marketing with the kind of desired outcomes that really needed to be achieved. Can you, can you tell us a bit about what that felt like? I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a, it was a pretty dark part of my life, I guess. Um, I guess staring, staring at this stuff and, and, and once I started to think of what I was part of producing, not, not as, I mean, there was, there was a time when I really bought the story, right? Like, and maybe more explicitly than you, Ed, like I I went into advertising in large part because I was, I was kind of 19 years old when the world trade center came down and, 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 and and, and our leaders told us to go shopping to, to sort of stand up for our society. And, and, And I kind of bought it to a large extent. And then, 
And then as I started, first started asking questions about how to make the world better, how to try and use it, then I, as you say, I came to the sort of conscious consumption, like, can we sell greener stuff? Can we get people to take Eurostar instead of flying? That, that, sort, of, that sort of work. But ultimately, where I got to was this this idea that it's not it's not so much the individual message; it's the it's the aggregate, and it's not just advertising. And I don't want to sort of demonise or, or kind of blame people who work in advertising. Although I I would advise you to change career. But <laughs> I mean, there's things like the fact that the consumer confidence index is a key measure of success of our societies. That every time we think about the, the, the idea of how well a country is doing it's 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 gdp and then and then the next step from gdp is um people are going shopping very happily and it's like that that is what it is to be a to be a good person and and that is precisely the problem it's only by going there and by staring at it really hard that you can come out of the other side of it and go actually there's a whole different way we could be and do things and that's really where i'm where my energy is now it's like it's why i sometimes say it's like it's not the i didn't call it the consumer doom project i called it the new citizenship project right like that's the point <laughs> <laughs> i realized that was quite a long time for you and, and obviously your low was a very low one but it, to go back to advertising as an industry do you get the sense of a lot of people feeling that way in that industry or do you get the intent of if there is such a thing as the industry trying to shift a certain way or do you feel like you you still remain quite an outlier in that sudden revulsion at, at what you were being part of uh i think no i think there's an, a lot of people in the industry are asking deeper and deeper questions there's some actually some really great work coming out uh, a gang called the purpose disruptors building community and and uh, across the industry and, and and facing into some of this stuff i don't I think, I mean, I don't think anyone's really named this, this in the way I am doing. I think, I think a lot of people, like, when I look around what's coming out of the industry, it still feels very 2010, right? Like, it's, um, mm. people are patting themselves on the back for, for, for selling greener stuff or, or finding a kind of a, a corporate social responsibility angle to their marketing or whatever. And it's like, we're, we're kind of past that, guys. Like, we have to wake up to... It's, it's like a lullaby it's like it's like it's 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 singing us to sleep to just go no like we can we can just we can we can buy our way out of this we can we can we can individualize this down to and you know small actions can change the world and it's like i mean those i don't want to come across as saying those small actions don't matter but actually it's it's only when we get stuck in together and, and critically when when leaders and institutions actually open up the, the, the power and the space for us to get involved that, that things really change. Yeah, I mean, I, no, I totally concur with that. I mean, I think, you know, what you get is a lot of sort of self-congratulatory backslapping uh, of people still operating, as you describe it, within that consumer story and it is it's really marginal gains uh, and as you say it's not that those small actions don't matter but when people say you know if everyone does a little it'll make a big difference it's like no if everyone if everyone does a little it makes a little bit of difference you know people constantly misread the the basic physics of that and you know i was really struck by you know in the book you quote morpheus in the matrix where he says you know says to neo he says you know you're here because you know something and what you know, you can't explain, but you feel it. And you felt it your entire life that there's something wrong with the world. And you don't know what it is, but it's there like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. I mean, you clearly had that feeling. I had that feeling. And I think it takes a lot of courage 
to, to step out. And I think what you've started to do is articulate, obviously, where we go to from here. But it's also worth acknowledging, isn't it? It's like why that consumer story was so compelling, isn't it? Compared to where we came from historically. Yeah. And you sort of mentioned the, the subject story, um, you know, where we have these strong sovereign leaders and it was very paternalistic and patriarchal and hierarchical. But in that sense, the, the moving from subject to consumer was really exciting, wasn't it? The reason this got so deeply embedded is it felt like a liberation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the one of the things I, I always think about a lot, and actually where where that where naming the subject story came for, from for me was was actually talking to my parents and, and thinking about their lives because because my mum my found it quite hard when I was sort of rejecting this this consumer story in a way. Like, she's deeply supportive of me. But she look at it from her perspective. She was like, she remembers her, her family's first washing machine. You know, it was called a, it was called a Hot Point Liberator. And, and like, it deserves its name, right? <laughs> sounds, sounds like a tank. <laughs> I know, but well, yeah, it kind of does. But then when you think about what consumer goods have done in terms of time and space, that what they what they could have given us, and and when you think about where what what the consumer story is relative to what came before, relative to that idea of like keep your head down, do as you're told. I mean, I, in the book, I and and, and I stumbled on the year 1984, and it's just like as a as a sort of someone who's trying to tell a story. When you realise the year 1984 is significant, you have this little ah moment. But it's like 1984. You had the the Apple launched the Macintosh and did it with this kind of. Uh, the, the, uh, this fanfare of, of you'll see why 1984 a rip off of the film and then saying Apple will launch the Macintosh and you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984 and they were basically saying like because the the, the upstarts the the power will be put into the hands of the individual rather than the big establishment who will only sell you what they want to sell you that same year you had Virgin Atlantic launching like dis- like saying fl- flying doesn't have to tra- international travel doesn't have to be tr- being treated like cattle that was that was Branson's language and you had you also had Body Shop launching on the floating on the stock exchange saying like you can buy stuff to save the planet you had and all of this stuff happened in the same year with this vibe of like this is a golden dream. Like we've we've cracked it, and 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 it had been brewing for a long time. But I think like thinking about that as the as the promise, but then noting where that promise just hasn't been fulfilled, and 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 actually was inherently kind of broken, helps you helps you appreciate like not only that we are trapped, and 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 see that the consumer story is a is a fundamental problem, but understand why and how because. Because it did promise us liberation, it did promise a way forward, and and yet, like when you actually call it out, when you actually name the logic of it, this idea that like the pursuit of self-interest will add up to, it's, it is Orwellian. It's, it's selfishness is selflessness, right? It's it's and it's bonkers. And when we when we name it, and when you actually spell it out, you just go, well, that's that's not right. <laughs> that's not going to work. John, there's a really good moment, like really early on in the book, which kind of I think as an example kind of really sort of exposes this very well, which is when you talk about Patagonia. So Patagonia is, uh, you know, for those listeners who don't know about it, is is regarded as one of the most forward thinking, progressive, climate loving brands out there. And they they make outdoor clothing and they've done a lot of really great stuff and are often held up as a kind of a poster boy for, you know, where the world needs to go in terms of in terms of the corporation, but you kind of un- un- unpick that, you know, with, with, with respect for them, you're, you're doing it kindly, but you kind of say actually underneath 
that even the most sort of progressive country, there's a fundamental problem. Perhaps could you just sort of go, run through that example? Because I found it particularly useful in helping expose the, the consumer story, even in the places where we think it's working well. Yeah, and I just, I mean, just to qualify, like I, I don't think, what I, I actually wasn't trying to say like even the most progressive, even the best company is flawed. I was trying to, I was trying to say like, Yes, and like like we can do so much more. I, I, I'm not. A, I'm not. A, I don't think Patagonia is a load of shit, right? Like I'm. I'm, I'm a fan. The analysis I was I was offering really is that there's the, it can be summed up in pretty much a phrase, which is like the the, the I think it was the CEO uh, wrote something like the single best thing we can do is consume in a less damaging way. Like it's almost kind of word for word explicitly saying like the single best thing. And, and, and a lot of their, a lot of their, what they've done is, is sort of directed at that. And I guess what I'm, what I'm really talking about in this is, is like actually at the root of it, the consumer story is, is, is really a kind of a massive like species level self hatred complex. It's like the the single best thing we can do is, is, is do less damage, rather than like the single best thing we could do is, is create wonder and beauty and brilliance together, mm. like. And, and I talk in the book about like, what if, what if Patagonia didn't, I mean, they became famous for that. Don't buy this jacket ad. If people haven't seen it, it's worth checking out. And it's, I, it was made a big noise in Black Friday back about a decade ago. It was like, they said, they said, you know, don't, don't buy our stuff, but and, and we'll, we'll make stuff that will last forever. And you're like, great. But what if, what if they could, I guess if I, I was sort of casting into a citizen story, like what if they could embrace that, uh, the idea that people are sources, not just of, of consumption that can be decreased, like minimized in its negative impact, but sources of ideas and energy and resources and, and creativity that can be channeled and harnessed to create wonder and beauty. And it's like, what if, what if Patagonia's campaign was like, I am nature rather than, rather than just don't buy this jacket, right? Like it's how could they champion and support and, and draw on the ideas of, of all of us to, and, and, and actually the ownership of all of us to, to create a different relationship between people and nature rather than just sort of say, don't, don't fuck things up quite as much. That'd be nice. Yeah. <laughs> when it, it's terrifying, isn't it? That the extent of our sense of agency becomes really binary, that we're either destroyers or saviors. And I was really struck by the line where you said, you know, we've become so intoxicated by our power to choose that we forget that the real power is in designing the menu. You know, it actually lies upstream. And I think the stories you also tell around, you know, working with NGOs and charities, you know, particularly in this context of like effective altruism, where there's a sort of cold, logical, rational efficiency of giving, you know, where you focus in on where you spend the best money to save the most lives. And and, and that can end up in a really weird place, can't it? Because, it, you know, I think the example you use is of like saving a Picasso from a burning building rather than a child, because you get more money by saving the Picasso, and then you can use that to save more children elsewhere. But, you know, there's that sort of false approach that comes through when you when you have a consumer approach to charitable giving. Yeah, absolutely. And, and my friend Edgar, Edgar Villanueva wrote a book called um, uh, Decolonizing Wealth about, about philanthropy and, and about, about charity. And, and he, has this, he has this wonderful way of putting it, which comes from his kind of um, indigenous wisdom background. He talks about like 
there's this phrase all our relations and this idea that that actually like altruism in itself is a flawed construct because there is there is only all our relations there is and, and when you when you see the world in that sense when you when you step out one of the one of the ways we talk about the the, the shift from consumer to citizen is that, is that it's a shift from kind of this this myth of independence and an atomized individual to interdependence and like knowing that we need one another and and in and in that charitable context it's about going well look we're all givers and receivers at different times but actually like there we all have a contribution to make and the, and and that is the most exciting aspect of this everyone can and wants to contribute to the to the to the world if 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 we're given the context to do so and so like in that sense you you get beyond the kind of there's there's an us and a them and and the and the us might give to them or not and and go like how can a, a bigger us to to use the language of people like Alex Evans and others to, to to sort of actually look at the world together and go like how do we how do we just do this better and how can we draw on the ideas and energy and resources and some people are bringing money as their form of resources and others are bringing other stuff like how do we bring all of that to do this better rather than how do we sort of mechanistically i my favorite way of, of sort of blowing the effective altruism thing out of the water is actually i think desmond tutu's originally is like we, we need to the, the famous effective altruism thought is like you peter singer one of the architects of it talks about the life you can save and you you, you should always if you can pull the, the the drowning child out of the pond as you walk past then then you always should and tutu uh had this thing where it's like well, maybe we need to go upstream a bit and find out why there are so many children in the pond before we, before yeah. we spend all of our time pulling people out, right? Like, because otherwise they might just get thrown back in. And I think that's a, that sort of logic is, is very citizen logic. It's like, who are we and how do we get stuck into this rather than like, how do we fix the immediate thing that I can do right in front of me with, with the minimal amount of expense usually? Yeah, it's interesting. As you're talking, John, it reminds me like when we um, are thinking about you know, how well our society is doing, it always comes down to you know how well is the economy doing, you know. And that's often like on the BBC, we we'll go, well, you know, here's what's happening with the retail price index, or here's how the economy is going, or here's the prime minister, you know, whether it's left or right, talking about the economy and jobs and all that kind of stuff. But there's never any kind of like, how is governance doing? How is social cohesion doing? You know, they're just not there. There's only this one measure, which is the economy and your ability to to participate in that either as a supplier or a buyer, which seems, you think about it, it just seems completely bonkers. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the example that I love most and the, the story that, that when I was digging into it for the book, like really made my hair stand on end. And I was like, this is actually like, this is happening. This is fully real was, um, was actually the, the, the story of what's been going on in Taiwan over the last decade. And, and it's really fascinating you, you, you made that observation because the, 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 that Taiwanese story starts in exactly this place. So the, um, back in 2012, the government, uh, Taiwanese government was trying to rush through a trade deal with, with mainland China. It was sort of, and and, it was called, and they, they, they published a big thing. They talked about the economic power-up plan. And they literally put messages out, put, put TV ads and so forth out that said like, don't like let's not let's not sort of get get all uh, complex and confused like we'll we'll look out we'll sort the economy and you guys just you guys just stick get get on with your lives and 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 we'll do it for you and it was and it was that that triggered uh, a group of initially a group of uh, most most powerfully a group of hackers actually software developers in what's quite a high-tech society to come together and start organizing 
and and they called themselves Gov Zero, which is lovely because the all of the URLs of their websites have a g0v.tw instead of .gov.tw. But they basically built parallel websites, the government websites, and started involving people in or in shadow versions of the discussions that different government departments were having. And it, it was built quite gradually. But then 2014 comes, and 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 this trade deal comes before the parliament. And it triggers a massive student protest, right? And and uh, Occupy style. And then the students occupied the, the, the legislature and started, what they'd started doing was debating the clauses of this trade bill. And the hacker collective got a broadband connection in and, and streamed streamed out footage of what the students were doing so people around the country could see what was what was happening. And then this critical moment came where where the speaker of the parliament actually said, "This is democracy. This is this is what it looks like. This is this is what should be happening in this space." And stood up, stood on the side of the students. And from then on, the whole picture flipped. And now, like there was this wonderful the the, the, the Taiwanese approach to COVID was basically rooted in seeing the whole thing as a national team effort, believing for a start that everyone was capable of contributing and was capable of dealing with the reality of the situation. So they never hid anything. They never they never pretended it was smaller. They they published all of the information. They set challenge prizes to build apps that would help. That, my favorite example yeah. is they, they 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 did this thing where they set up a phone line where any citizen could could help come up with ideas for how the response could be better. And, and like the whole thing went from a kind of consumer economic paradigm of we will like the, the decisions that will be made will be made entirely kind of on the basis of what is best for the economy to a kind of participatory, open, involving world where where all of us were part of it. And that kind of society led to them you know, developing their test and trace app, I think, in about a matter of days, and it, and it worked straight away, pretty much, whereas ours took, like, you know, weeks and months and cost billions and uh, and failed quite miserably. Yeah, exactly that. We talked about something similar to this in the in the future of leadership, that being very honest about the problems in, is actually engaging. How is it that we don't, because in terms of the problems we face with climate and COVID and things like that, we talk a lot about how serious everything is, but clearly we're not doing it in a way that is seen as honest and uh, people don't feel able to be involved in it. Do you think it's it's the way we talk about things or do you think it's a fundamental failure of honesty that we know there are big problems, but we don't know the truth about how to deal with them? I don't know. I think I look at it a little bit differently maybe, which is that, the the critical thing I'm looking for is is agency and like what what is it that people can do that's commensurate with the scale of the challenge and and I think that the real failure of leadership isn't so much the the suppression of information it's the failure to acknowledge agency to acknowledge what it is that people can really do to make that a bit more real like I think I think the the moment I felt like I absolutely had to write this book was. Um, was actually the moment when uh, when the message back in May 2020. Do you remember when the message changed from "stay home" to "stay alert," and everyone was like, "What? Yeah. The, what is this?" And in my mind, it was a moment when the the sort of the subject story, the kind of paternalism, was was falling away. And yes, they were suppressing information and and so on and so forth, and we know that now. But, but what they were doing more was saying the the responsibility is personal like it's on you and i think that's the greatest failure we've got in climate and so on as well is that is that we've we're still trapped in a in a mode of saying you as an individual this is what you can do when actually like the what was going on in that moment in time going back to the covid situation was that was that 
if you remember, like mutual aid groups had sprung up all over the country. We had we had viral those viral kindness postcards. Do you remember where, where it's like, uh, if you're isolating, I can help you with this, dropping through letterboxes. We, we had mm. 750,000 people apply to become NHS first responders and crash a website that had been, been built for 250,000 over three weeks. That's 750,000 in like 48 hours. And, and what could have happened in that time, I think, in that moment of shifting the message, could have been like coming in behind that energy and and as in Taiwan sort of setting those challenges and and and, and opening out for ideas and and building a building a sense that we would figure this out together I, I've talked elsewhere about like setting up a, a deliberative democracy kind of citizens reference panel or something to be part of the decision making process we could have we could have been involved rather than just told or or dictated to in any way and I think that for me it's not so much like withholding information. It's like it's structuring opportunity. It's creating the spaces and the modes. That's true leadership. Is yes, being honest, but also taking the challenge of of facilitation. Really, like uh, creating the spaces and the and the structures through which people can do stuff meaningfully. And that is that is the task of the leader, I reckon. And that was a massive failure, wasn't it? Because ultimately, you know, we know now. Um, obviously the ongoing saga uh, of all the parties that were clearly going on you know during lockdown in number 10 and various government departments is like it's a sort of lack of trust of the public isn't it by a paternalistic sort of subject story-led leadership Um, and in some ways perhaps that's just a projection from them it's like they didn't trust us to do the right thing because they weren't doing the right thing themselves (laughs) you know Um, but and the way you describe that shift you know to stay alert as being more about a, a consumer story, you know, about saying, you know, that this is about a preservation of power on the part rather than a facilitation and an opening up and building on, on those mutual aid groups and all that incredible grassroots resilience, which was happening, you know, pretty much in spite of government rather than because of it. Yeah, absolutely in spite of rather because, and I think that the, wor- the worry I have about this moment that we're living in right now and uh, with like the par- party gate and all this stuff is that like, yes, I mean, that stuff is properly appalling, right? Like these people shouldn't be anywhere near leadership positions, but like the, the deeper shift, like other, not many other countries actually opened up to this. Like the story has hold in, in more places and goes deeper than just, like we're not going to fix this by getting rid of Boris, basically. That's that's no. the sort of, and I, and I worry that we miss that. The thing about trust and, and do, do they trust us, the, the one moment, the moment in the writing of the book where this, where I just like, I, my mind was blown, was I interviewed um, Audrey Tang, who's the uh, Taiwanese digital minister. And, and in the interview, um, I said, uh, people must really trust the government of Taiwan for you to do this stuff. Like, I mean, they're doing stuff like this, this helpline, this idea line, like a six-year-old boy would ring up and, and say, like, and, and, and offer an idea. And uh, it was a wonderful idea, by the way, about the baseball team. And, and then he was on the TV show the next day. But it was like, for, for that to be done, people must really trust government to, to, to phone in and, and for, to let their kids phone in and all this. And what, what she said to me was... Um, was really profound. She said, "We don't, we don't care. In fact, we don't even want people to trust the government because people trust the government in other countries, and we can see how that works. What we care about is that the government trusts people." Mm. And it's just this like profound flip of like of, of what what this whole role of the government, role of government, the relationship between state and citizen actually is. To go, no, no, no. Like this starts with 
the government trusting the people and respecting them and providing them with the context and, and, and opportunities that are required to enable us to do stuff together. That's the, that's the nub of this. So, John, I've got sort of two, not challenges, but sort of two points of view to kind of sort of widen out the conversation a bit. The first is like, as we've all become consumers and trapped in the consumer story, you could argue that actually you couldn't trust us because we, as consumers, having been trained to be consumers, we'd come up with consumer answers. So that that could be one reason they don't want to do it. And, and another reason sometimes that's given to me is that people say, well, you know, involving people is all very well and good, but it's the, the, the management overhead is very, very hard. And it's much easier to manage three people in City Hall than, you know, thousands and thousands of citizens. So they say it's an efficiency play. It's, well, actually, it's just not an efficient way to run a state. How would you sort of counter those two arguments? I mean, A, there's, there's not very much evidence for either. But the, the first one is, um, is I think that the, the argument I would make is that when you ask people meaningful questions from a meaningful place, then people take, take on that responsibility. So the best example is probably the way that the, the Irish government developed the shift in, in, in policy on, abor- on abortion. So the way that started, actually, the referendum is famous, right? So in 2018, there was a referendum where 66% of the Irish population voted to uh, legalise access to abortion up to 12 weeks. But the way that proposal was developed was by a citizens' assembly. So 99 randomly selected Irish citizens, representative of the national population, coming together for five weekends over five months to develop that proposal, pretty much consensus-based process. And that was a single parents, lorry driver, like everyone, Catholics, Protestants, like the whole the whole shebang in that in that room. And and being given that meaningful power in order to do stuff. It's when it's when you don't give people meaningful power and when, when it is actually a trivializing process that people kick back. I mean, sometimes the Beatty McBoat face thing. Do you remember Beatty McBoat face when the, the um, <laughs> research council? Yeah. And that, that's that's probably an example of what you're sort of hinting at, right? It's like you open up for people's ideas and they'll suggest something like Beatty McBoat face and vote for it. I actually... I mean, even that, I, I think that's true uh, in some ways as an example. And, and, uh, but I'd argue it's because it was, a, it was a pretty trivial opportunity for engagement and people didn't really believe that it would be taken seriously. But even that, I would argue, actually has done an awful lot. Like the, the guy who proposed the, the name Beatty McBoatface then got into conversation with them and, and, and became, came on side with them naming the boat David Attenborough and, and, and got everyone who'd voted for his idea to support it as well. And then they did name a submarine on the boat, Beatty McBoatface, and people have followed that on Twitter and so forth. And it's been a major uh, channel of connection to, the, to that research council. I think, yeah, as you say, it's got to be something more sophisticated than just naming something. Right. It? It's exactly. like, yeah. I mean, I, I, there's an examples I used to use in my presentations when Greenpeace invited um, people to name a whale that they were tracking to follow whale migration routes. Uh, and the winning vote was Mr. Splashy Pants. And it was like, <laughs> you know, and then I think Mountain Dew, you know, the soft drinks company also had a kind of name a new flavor competition and they had to pull it when the winning one was what called Hitler had the right idea. Uh, you know, <laughs> these things getting hacked. But, but again, you know, that's because the ask is relatively trivial. If you actually give people much, something much more substantive, and I think citizens' assemblies, uh, you know, and more or more meaningful engagement around solutions. I mean, I think the other example used in the book is Taiwan's um, crowdsourced regulatory response to Uber, which I think you said took four weeks. 
Yeah, and that, that's the perfect response to the speed challenge, I think. Yeah, crowdsourcing that you, where you open up for ideas from everywhere, you use technology. And this is one of the reasons why the citizen story actually could take hold now in this moment in time. Like the tech is there that, that, in, that we can actually tap into collective intelligence and, and bring ideas from everywhere in a way that maybe hasn't been possible before. And I think that's that's part of it. But, but I think so many of those defences, those, those rejections come from a place of, actually underneath it like thinking that people are a bit shit that's the sort of real challenge is that a gradual process though because we're obviously now into sort of i guess how we unfuck ourselves and you've put a very good case for what can be done and what it looks like when it's done it's very inspiring and i'm sort of worried to ask the question how do we start to do then because we've also discussed a lot of people doing a little is still a little so is it is it fermenting a situation where a lot of people suddenly feel empowered to do a lot or is it gradual openings up of areas in which people can see oh if you trust us to make a decision and it's done well then it's of benefit to everyone i think the first thing so first just to say like i don't think it has to take ages i mean taiwan's like i said 2012 they were pretty much where we are now with a with a with a government trying to kind of swing through without involving us at all and so on so and, and 10 years on, they're, they're in a wholly different place. So just, just in terms of like, first point, then then to recognize that, that actually people are already doing this stuff and everyone is doing stuff in their own lives. Like, and in, in, in every community, you will, you, if you start to look, you will find that there are organizations and people kind of coming together to figure stuff out. And the next part of it is then like, okay, how do you, open the door to that one of the things i sometimes like to say is that it's not it's not that we are we sometimes we sort of have to learn to be citizens we are citizens by nature we just have to stop telling ourselves that we're consumers all the time and let that let that take hold give it the oxygen and so so in terms of like how this shift happens then it's like the the critical moments are the ones where where organizations kind of open up and let people let people have a say or and it can it doesn't it can be the charity it can be charities it can be businesses it can be governments and so it's in that sense a lot of people doing a little is really powerful so and the phrase that um israeli complexity theorist who's a who's a amazing woman who's a mentor of mine who has the phrase social acupuncture it's like when in all these different places across our society organizations and institutions and government and, and business and so on open up power to people and and, t- and speak to us as citizens rather than just as consumers that is the stuff that will add up that that is the release of the energy that will then really start to flow because it is in our nature to do so so it's like and in the book i talk about everyone from like national trust to parkinson's uk to Brewdog to riverford to government departments are doing it the bank of england's doing it in some ways like and, and it's that that's what gives me hope is that it, this is like this is actually like a surging story of points of light that are actually beginning to connect and, and add up and I, I really believe it could happen very very quickly although, although to john's point it's, it's it's certainly the case for instance like in if you look at participatory budgeting um, you know, lots of places try it and then they stop because, you know, it's not a meaningful engagement, you know, so they, they'll put up a small amount of the city budget or whatever. And then the process is difficult, but we don't know how to do it. So it kind of doesn't do very well in the first year and people kind of go, oh, well, that didn't work, so we'll stop. And what, you know, lots of studies on into participatory budgeting have found is like, you need to keep on doing it 
you know, do it for five years, do it for six years, put meaningful amounts of money on the table. And, and then pretty soon, you know, within sort of five or six years, people will expect to be asked, whereas rather than distrusting this process. So there is a, there has to be a commitment to saying, like, we're not just going to try this, you know, next month. And if people don't participate, we're fucked. You've got to say, we're going to carry on, carry on doing it. Like I think the example you give participation processing is is exactly an example of what we were talking about before. Like many or many places have sort of tiptoed into it with, as you say, small amounts of money, sometimes treated as a shadow process to see what people would say. And of course, people have not really engaged with that because it's trivial. Whereas, but actually there are places, I mean, Paris is a wonderful example. The city of Paris at the moment is really fascinating. I don't know. So they've been doing participatory budgeting for a long time. I think it's up to like 100 million euros a year. And they also have, they've just, just, I think next week, the first meeting of uh, the Paris Citizens Assembly. So they, they've created a standing Citizens Assembly to be part of the, the ongoing city administration. So a bit like it's, it's effectively playing a role a bit like the House of Lords in the UK, but, but it's, it's randomly selected citizens holding the elected representatives to account and commissioning uh, citizen inquiries into particular issues on an annual basis. So, so like there is in, in the city of Paris, there's other stuff similar in Brussels in some ways. There's really interesting stuff going on in various cities in Poland, like these like really deep commitments to to power are happening and they're happening like like you say five six years can be can be the time scale in some places but but actually in in others it's it's it takes hold an awful lot quicker particularly because like in those places where where it comes from public demand i think one of the things i'm working on most at the moment is like creating the structures uh creating like little processes and and, and bigger processes that, that open the door to government to step into actually on this one of my one of my biggest, um, the, the people I sort of, or the, the organisation, as it were, that I would probably criticise most for this not actually having taken hold in Britain isn't so much our current government. It's actually, I've got a bit of a beef with Extinction Rebellion on this front. It's because of the Climate Assembly. So when XR first kicked off, right, that they were, one of their key asks was for a citizens' assembly. And, and that was absolutely the right ask. And they wanted it to be uh, commissioned by government and they wanted it to be legally binding and they wanted it to have a timescale of, of, of net zero by 2035, I think. And then what happened was that six select committees, so not, not the government, but six select committees with, with meaningful power and meaningful voice in, in parliament, commissioned came together to commission a citizens' assembly on climate Obviously, it didn't have binding power because it wasn't the government and, and it had a remit of net zero by 2050 rather than 2035. But it was there and it was real and it was the citizen voice. And my beef with XR is that, is that they, that the response of XR was to say, no, nah, like not good enough, not interested uh, and, and to ignore it. And I'm like, what, what, you could, what could have happened in that moment, I believe, was that they could have gone... Yes, and right in, in classic sort of improv fashion. Yes, and like we will, we and we will line up our our, our rebellions, our protest moments alongside each of the gatherings of that citizens assembly. It had, I think, it had five gatherings over five months, a bit like the Irish one. And we will draw, we will make it impossible to ignore. And we will keep saying that it's not, it's not big enough, and it's not strong enough, and it's not good enough. But we will make it so noticed. And every, all the ingredients were there. David Attenborough spoke at it, you know, like all of, and, and the recommendations that came out with were profound and really powerful and, and almost universally acknowledged as being the right stuff to, to do and to happen. 
And and I just I I fundamentally believe that that if if XR had gone look at this, listen to this, and go further rather than going nah, not good enough, we could be in a very different place right now. And that's I mean I might I'm open to being told that I've I've got that completely wrong, but I I guess what I'm what I want to part of what I'm saying in that, and part of what that I think exemplifies about what this work is about is it's not just the critique of of government and of people in power and and sort of the little people saying oh listen to us it's actually it's it's on us as well to 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 create the space and to say yes and and to push that to happen and i think there's ways of doing that i mean i totally i totally agree with you john you know that i felt very very similar and one of the things you often find i think is that when people have defined themselves in opposition when they get what they want they don't quite know what to do so they start opposing the thing that they 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 asked for (laughs) Because it's like, well, what do I do now? Well, I know how to oppose things, so I'm I'm going to oppose that, and that's that's you know that's also not participatory, really. It's kind of like you know it's mm. it's, it's setting yourself against everybody else, and actually, when people come around, they don't quite know what what to do. I think that's really insightful. They're fascinating example of Extinction Rebellion because they are, you know, they're all about us acting and and doing things and the power of you know individuals to do great things, but they are also incredibly polarizing. And I meet far more people who say to me, I want to be behind them, but I'm not, Mm. than I do people who, you know, say, oh, this is fantastic. This is exactly what we should be doing, taking control ourselves. I think that's right. You're totally right. Like, I think, and I think, I don't know whether we consciously acknowledge it, but I think there's, I think there's a big part of us as humans that sort of wants to not just, not just reject, but to, but to build. Right. And I think, I think that's, I think that's some of where that's coming from. One of the things that my work is often mistaken for is is an argument that that everyone should be an activist. Like if you're not a con- like citizen equals activist, and 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 it's actually really like one of the yes, being an activist protesting is is one of the things that that citizens do, and I, and I think particularly in this country at the moment with the policing bill and so on, it's it's really critical to defend that right. And I'm not saying it, I'm not saying that. But as you say, I'd like uh, there is more to it. There is there, there is proposal, not just reaction. And there is there is creation, not just rejection. And I think that that possibility demands actually that that at least part of what we do is to come into our I talk in the book about the idea of home and like where are the places and communities and that, that might be geographic or it might be work-based or, or whatever where where you have agency and you can you can be part of building something and you can gather, gather those around you to do so. And I love the way um, Rob Hopkins, uh, 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 who, who wrote a book called From uh, What Is To What If, I think, he, he has this phrase, he says, if we, if we wait for governments, it'll be too late. And that sort of, that speaks to protest. Uh, don't just reject the governments. He says, if we wait for governments, it'll be too late. If we act as individuals, it'll be too little. But if we come together as communities, it might be just enough, just in time. And I think that that sort of speaks to the thing I was saying earlier about like the best thing an individual can do is be less of an individual. It's like we are the power, we all have power, actually. And, and part of the shift from consumer to citizen it sort of goes back to the lady you were talking about at the beginning, Ed, the sort of, the sort of I'm in my bubble. It's like, well, get the out of it then like <laughs> because we, we you have power like and, and not using the power that you have as a as a member of local community as a member of as a, as a member of as an employee of your organization or as an employer not using the power you have is 
yeah. is the greatest uh, sort of dereliction of duty, really, in this moment. Yeah, I mean, you talk you talk about Baratunde Thurston, don't you, in the States, who talks about how to citizen and make it says it's a verb, you know, and actually citizenship is a muscle. You know, it's not it's not just a verb because it's not just a noun. That's yeah. sort of possessive, exclusive thing. And we talk about in terms of citizenship or, you know, selling golden passports um, to rich Silicon Valley tech giants. But, you know, citizenship's a muscle that you've got to flex and you've got to exercise it. Um, otherwise, it, it atrophies. And in a way, the consumer story is, has enabled it to atrophy. Uh, and what we need to do is just start exercising it again vigorously in a sort of Iron Man type way. And what better <laughs> person to inspire that than you, John? Yeah, I mean, it reminds me very much of the quote by Alice Walker, the American novelist who wrote The Colour Purple and a bunch of other great novels. She said something along the lines of, um, the quickest way people give up their power is by believing they don't have any. Yay. Yeah, that really strikes. I mean, the, 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 the only thing I would add to what you just said, Ed, is like, it's yes, it's a muscle you build and a muscle you have to work. But also, like, it's a muscle that when you start using it, you really enjoy using it and you feel stronger and you feel healthier and you feel like part of it. And it's and it's just great. Like, and that, I think, that is the that is the true power. I, I, I got that, the phrase, the citizenship is a muscle you build, not a cup you empty. Uh, I got from a guy called Stephen Green, who was involved in the setting up of the of the National Citizen Service, and used used to run a thing called Rock Corps. And the way Rock Corps works oh, is yeah. that you get you the, you have to do the only you, there's, they set up these enormous, amazing gigs, uh, like huge artists, and the only way to get a ticket to the gig was to do four hours of community action. What Stephen told me was uh, was that that ninety. I'm going to get the numbers wrong, so don't like don't like publish these in an academic journal or whatever. I can't see that happening. But, um, but Stephen said uh, like 90-odd percent. How dare you? Oh, no, I'm very dare. 90-odd percent of the people who, of the young people who, who did, the, did the community action did it solely to get the gig ticket. But 70-something percent of them went on to do more community action that was completely unrewarded. And, and I think that, that hints at it, right? It's like, how do you give people that first? And four hours is enough. To John, to your thing earlier, like, does this take ages? It's like, nah, four hours, dude. <laughs> We're on it. Yeah, I I wrote their purpose, uh, moving a generation to change the world. We're doing something very similar, actually. With uh, I'm doing some gigs at the moment for the charity Fair Share, who say financially they're sort of okay what they need is volunteers and if yeah. you put on a gig they'll raise a bit of money but the people that come in the building might never leave again and we're looking to either make the tickets free to people who sign up to volunteer or at least discounted for people who go on the mailing list to sort of build that idea that it's, it's part of a relationship for the audience coming that will go on beyond the gig do you know john i love that phrase if the people who come in the building might never leave again i think is just great like and the same the same was uh, in the work i did at the national trust where part of what we did was to try and re like reframe it reframe that relationship as being like like the joy of experiencing beauty in the world rather than just like purchasing a day out and, and when you when you say when you when you just sort of see things differently frame them a little bit differently people do come into that and then once you experience it once you're part of that kind of story you don't want to leave again like and like this isn't a i think one of the things i i really want to kind of i try i really want to hammer home in this in this work is like the citizen story isn't a heavy and worthy and and hard and horrible i mean actually the, the story that's heavy and hard and worthy is 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 trying to fix the world from within the consumer story 
Like this, the work of trying to consume your way to a better world is bastard hard. <laughs> and, and, and requires you to be a saint, right? Like the work of the work of being a citizen is 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 play. Actually, uh, is is like it's like meeting people and doing stuff together and, and knowing one another and, and finding joy and, and doing what makes you feel like like you're alive. And that's like that's so that's such a relief compared to the kind of I think one of the things the consumer story does is make being a change maker, trying to do something different in the world, really like awful. It's one of the, one of its self-preservation yeah. mechanics. Well, it's clear because the fact we have changed stories. I mean, like we said, we've shifted from a subject to a consumer story. And, you know, the problem, as you talk about in the book, is that, you know, that took two world wars and millions of people dead uh, and a very long time to shift. Um, and we need to do it much faster, like you elocute and articulate in that, um, great Taiwan example but we can begin to shift this but you know the challenge is like how do you shift a cultural narrative of citizenship you know from the consumer story and I think that's where your book was really compelling for me because it is about the big and the small isn't it what are the kind of the the huge headline and attention grabbing ideas that capture the imagination and you talk about a sort of crowdsourced version of the universal declaration of human rights to become a sort of global constitution for the human race but and that would be obviously mind-blowing uh, and potentially involving people all over the world but also it is that sweating of the small stuff i was really you know inspired when you first started out on this journey and and you gave a talk and a presentation which was all about you know not killing the consumer but stop calling people consumers because mm. of the psychological priming that occurs mm. when you label people um, as consumers which makes them self-interested slightly selfish and obsessed with their own rights as opposed to that psychological priming of citizenship which is more selfless expansive and about responsibilities and I think that sweating the small stuff matters too doesn't it whether it's job titles the way we talk about things in meetings and again in my agency life you know I desperately tried to get us to formally reject the label of consumer which is really tough when you're working with corporate clients all the time because they just that's that's their fallback that's their default they don't want to go into that sort of space so what's what's your take john on how this sort of cumulative big and small elements of the narrative come together to create the sort of higher level shift yeah that's a great question i mean i think the first the first thing, as you say, is is like stop using the word consumer because I mean yeah. that, that that single word has immense power. I just I mean I did actually didn't really put this stuff into the book, but there's some really fascinating social psych research where like it, it, even in like the single word consumer, if you put consumer response study on the front cover of a survey of environmental and social motivations for half like half the people get that and half the people get citizen response study. Like, and they're the same, like nationally, all demographically the same and all that kind of stuff. The people who get the consumer response study will report, will report lower social environmental motivation. Like the single word actually unconsciously presented primes you to, to be more selfish. So anyone who is listening to this who works in any sort of industry where you use the word, like just don't. Just to, I like people, fine. Like you don't have to say citizen. Just don't talk consumer. But, but the bigger point, I think uh, it is, we talk about... Um, I've started to talk about the idea of like totems and rituals, like for, to, to stand for the kind of the big symbolic, the, the things that really kind of carry the story and the rituals, the day to day. And it's, and these things are in, like you say, are in every organization. It's like, 
I do, I do think the idea of a, I mean, you talk about the the, the crowd, the idea of a crowdsourced version, of, like renewal of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, might sound like totally utopian. But actually, I reckon if Oxfam International and Amnesty International and a couple of others got together in sort of the similar spirit I was talking about, uh, XR, kind of, they could do something like that outside of outside of the UN and and, for, and sort of push the UN to adopt it. Like we, it cost a couple million quid. We've got all the, we, there is such a thing as a global assembly that's been uh, developed and, and run in the, on climate. Like we, these things, all of the stuff you need is there. It's not, it's not expensive to do and would send an incredibly powerful story. And then we need to put that together with like, what are the, what are the small, what are the sort of day-to-day shifts that can be different? I, one of the projects I'm most excited about on that sort of, ritual level but on a global stage as it were is i'm playing i'm working with various people on the concept of a citizen confidence index as opposed to the consumer confidence index like what would it look like to measure and report the extent to which people feel able to shape the world that they live in rather than just the confidence people have that they can consume more and i would argue actually for for the time being at least that could that would probably be a more uh, there are good reasons to believe that could be a more powerful indicator of uh, of economic prosperity than than consumption as well. That that totem and ritual thing translates also into an individual organisation. So, like at the National Trust, one of the totems was a campaign called Fifty Things to Do Before You're Eleven and Three Quarters." That was about like crowdsourcing a list of things that people could do to to bit to with their kids to build a, a, a connection to nature. And, and that campaign has, has run for years and been very famous in the organization and sent the organization a message about what kind of organization it is. But also, like, we paid, we were paying attention to, like, what are the photos on meeting room walls? And do they have, because we, before we started, they were, like, glamorous pictures of places with no person in sight. And it's like, well, if we're trying to connect people in place, then we need to see people enjoying those places. And so... So if you see what I mean, it's like it's the big and the small, it's the totem and the ritual, whether you're talking about an individual organization, which then in itself is an intervention point. Uh, I mean, the National Trust has five million members, right? And the role it's played in British society in the last couple of years is really fascinating. Or whether you're talking about the global thing of how you shift this whole story. So, so John, I think we're, we're, it's been great having you on. But I, uh, we talk a lot about mental health on this uh, on this show, um, and um, mainly marks. <laughs> fuck off! <laughs> uh, it's not surprising I suffer having to hang out with you two. <laughs> Friends like these, Mark. Indeed, indeed. But you know, you're a man who, you know, by your own admission, had had a kind of a fairly traumatic and dark, dark period, and you're also doing quite an extraordinary job in sort of, you know, trying to shift up the whole generational narrative. In away what do you do to keep yourself you know getting up in the morning because um because you know it's not like you've set yourself a small task there i don't know i mean i hate to be hate to sound cheesy but like i oh this is where you're going to prove you're a wanker yeah oh, <laughs> damn, it was all going so well <laughs> oh no i fell at the last hurdle oh no no i i, I but i just i don't find like i love this work i genuinely believe that every every one of us is like a capable caring like creative like brilliant creature and i go out in the world and i'm like well how do we unleash this and i and i just get so much joy from it and you just yeah of course there are moments when i look at the headlines and the and the stories and and feel like that that this isn't going to take hold and 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 in those times like getting out for a run i mean 
I know, I know. Like this is the risk of sounding like a twat because you, you've read out that sport is um, something I, I have done reasonably well in my life a couple of times. But it's 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 really a kind of um, for me. It's much more the the continuation of sport in my life is more about a kind of meditative space. It is. It is like mm. the, the the feeling of being out for a for a run in the trees is like is is medicine. But for the most part, I, I, and for now at least, and maybe maybe I'll I know we all go through through peaks and troughs, and but I I really am filled with like a, a sense that we are enough, like we 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 have everything we need, and and maybe it's because I'm about to put this out into the world, right? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm feeling really positive because I feel like I've, I'm about to be able to offer something that I've sort of been, I've sort of carried the burden of just on my own, like not on my own. That's not fair with, with my team, with the team and stuff, but, but we've kept sort of private and there's an anticipation of putting it into the world that, that makes me feel particularly positive. And maybe if it doesn't take hold and I sell 50 copies and then I'll be struck down. I don't know, but I, I just, I feel like, um, I feel like we can. And I feel like what I'm trying to do in the book is name that and make that story that we could step into and, and all the ways it could, it could help us flourish and, and, and help us find much more joy in our lives. Like make that available to people and, and probably sounding like a twat, which was the thing I was trying to avoid. No, well, what you're doing is, is shying away from celebrating being positive. It's one of the most fascinating things about, about this podcast and everything we talk about, citizenship, veganism, uh, climate change, whatever it is we talk about, the people engaged in it who make the change and become part of the future solution become happier and more engaged and yet it is the hardest thing to convince people because so much of it feels like you have to do this citizenship is a burden you need to take action and you can't hide in a bubble and you can't eat the things you want and you can't go on the holidays you want and actually so much of being part of the you know more streamlined and better way of life makes you feel happier but we just don't have that conversation very well yeah amen to that it's a joy and I think, John, you know, you're also being humble. I mean, you know, you, you talk in the, at the very end of the book about getting beyond the sort of heroism aspect of this, you know, where, you know, heroes are always about individualism and self-reliance, aren't they? Which is which is very consumer story and a bit cultish. Um, and it can involve all, all those sort of saviour complexes of great white straight men. But, you know, it's, it's about being anti-heroes. It's about stepping back, isn't it? About giving space and about flourishing and trusting. And that's where... The, the emergent joy comes from as you say we've got the capacity to do this we've got the platforms to do this we've also got the inclination and it's almost like we're not recognizing it within ourselves and and i think that's that's the beauty of it for me you know we've got to get out of our own way and have more fun while we're doing it yeah that's exactly it that moment of seeing not just yourself but others those around you as as, as citizens is like you start to ask yourself this question of like like, and, and this is where I finished the book, actually. And I, like the the idea of an antihero is what is one where, and it's it's something I'm I'm sort of speaking to myself as you often do at the end of at the end of writing a book, as I can judge from from reading others. Like you you come back and you go, so what are you actually saying to yourself? And what I'm really saying to myself is like, pass the mic. Like I, I'm a I'm sort of 
about to turn 40 i was six foot oh shut oh no, i've got i'm a decent athlete i mean like i i look i look and sound like the person the people who were brought up to believe that they would lead the world to safety and 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 the, i i've got my own hero complex i'll admit to that but but actually the work is of of stepping us of opening the door of, of like passing the mic and, and being the platform not the not the actor and i think that that makes me sort of I, the where I end the book is this question: like, what, what would you do in this time if you really believed in yourself and those, both in yourself and in those around you? What would you do in this time if you really believed in yourself and in those around you? And I think that question is where I, I'm, I'm really happy to have left the book on that note because I think it just invites us all into something that that really can be joyful, but also like really important. I hope. There you go. You just sold more than 50 to our listeners. That's it. So <laughs> you might need to have. Thank you so much. No, thank you so much for having me, guys. So there we go. That uh, that was our interview. What are your thoughts after the event, Mark? I think I think the thing that keeps coming back to me and I think is something that we can all remember is like, because we get asked this a lot, you know, what can I do as an individual? To which the answer is be less of an individual. I just think mm. that's just it that just mm. kind of nails it at a very personal level it's like connecting the personal to the to the bigger picture like what can i do be less centered around you and be more centered around the bigger picture it's, it's like it's like systems thinking in a, in a maxim i think that's just brilliant it's one of the things that john's great i've been working with him on, on another project um this week and just seeing him in a room you know people just shut up and start listening and, just, and, and they also just feel welcomed and loved and it's just something about him that's just mm. he is a twat he's just so nice and brilliant oh, i hate him yeah <laughs> Can't be doing with this, can we? When are we going to have a guest on who's crap and doesn't know what they're talking about? Because it, it feels like that falls to me every week. Well, the thing, <laughs> is, the thing is, we are going to interview you on another podcast, aren't we, John, where you can be our guest. So if you, you can fulfil that role if you like. Excellent. Good. I yeah. shall look forward to it. It's typecasting. It's be even less informed than usual. <laughs> Ed, how are you feeling? I, wonder, I mean, the thing that I re really... Um, sticks with me from what John was saying is the fact that you know the story this consumer story that we draw so many of our supposed solutions from is the thing that's broken you know so if the well from which you're in which you're dipping your bucket to try and get the water of refreshment is contaminated then all of those solutions are kind of compromised and you know we talk a lot about that systemic change piece but it just feels like you've got to change that story and you know, how much effort it takes to sustain that story. You know, mm -hmm. I think John used the words bastard hard, uh, but it really is. And I, I always go back to David Graeber, you know, the sort of great anarchist anthropologist, where he said, the world is made of stories and we can change them anytime. And so I, you know, I'm left sort of upbeat and optimistic because what John always leaves me thinking is that that self-belief piece that, you know, believing in ourselves is the big hump we have to get over. Um, yeah, you know, and that and that's the inspiration. That story you told about the Taiwanese government, where he said, you know, oh, you know, people must really trust the government, and and the, and the minister turning around going like, it's not about that; it's whether the government trusts the people. Yes, I thought that was very profound. And we're stuck in the, like the worst of both worlds right now, where you know we don't trust the government, and the government palpably doesn't trust us. Yeah. We are back next week. We have uh, two episodes left in this series, so do keep your suggestions for topics. We are always planning the next one, and we will be lining up guests for Series 4 as we speak. Uh, and we welcome, of course, your earthly confessions, your emails about what you do when you listen, and the emails that genuinely keep us going are, are your reactions to specific episodes and people you've spoken to about the topics we've discussed and changes you've made in your life as a result of listening are 
absolutely uh, inspiring for us to read. So keep those coming in and here's how you can reach us. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the future notes, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, as ever. Look after each other. I thought you were going to go back to Radio 4 Voice. I really thought you were going to bookend it. Are you going to do a callback? But you haven't. You've disappointed me. Well, I was going to go the other way. I was going to make <laughs> you think I was going to do that, and then I was going to say, fuck you later, and then leave. <laughs> <laughs> which do you want? You decide which side of the coin you want. Oh, wow, it's interactive. Yeah, it's a choose-your-own-adventure. <laughs> Turn to page 274 for the yeah. uh, clean professional ending. I, I would like you to uh, end it in the style of a Russian newsreader. Okay. During during the Ukrainian invasion. This is end of broadcast. All has been good. Nobody here culpable for anything bad. We hope you enjoy what is 100% fact. Next episode, we will broadcast live from your living room. We are outside now, ready to come in. Knocking in five, four, three, two, one. Cheerio, tati, bye. <laughs> <laughs>